As most of you know, if you have been here, if you haven't been here, I'll inform you that we have been involved and we are involved in a series right now. Uh, You can see from the the slide, Revolutionary, the Church as a Revolution. The idea behind the sermon, the theme behind this series is that the church is a revolution. And because the church is revolutionary, we are revolutionaries. We are called as by God to be people who are part of the revolution, the revolution of God's kingdom come and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And the idea behind this is involved with, uh, we're looking at these five different areas. We've already looked at the church as a revolutionary fellowship, and we've looked at revolutionary worship. And this morning we're going to be looking at revolutionary mercy and justice. And then the next two weeks is revolutionary teaching and revolutionary evangelism. And so let's see if that topic, no, I just wanted to see if that one slide slipped away from me for some reason. So the idea of the church as a revolution. So this morning we're looking at the church and the idea of the revolution of mercy and justice. Now, in order to get into this topic, I have to share with you a little bit of my own personal story. I grew up in a classic kind of middle American Anglo family. Uh, I, the Lord brought me to himself as a seventh grader in junior high school, and then my family members all came to Christ during that period of time. But we, we were kind of your classic middle, middle American family, and the idea of mercy and justice, while our family was kind and gracious, this wasn't a theme in my family of origin. Uh, but as I got the two people who have been the, the, the biggest influencers in my life in these areas are my wife, Janet, and my son, Rob, my oldest son. Uh, Janet grew up in a very difficult family background and situation, and so she's always had a heart for mercy and a, heart of, uh, a merciful heart towards issues and towards people. I remember after we got married, uh, that's when there was a great transition happening in our culture around uh, the issue of abortion, and that became one of the first primary issues that the church began rallying around, and I, and I can still remember that Janet was the one who moved me from being one thinking in theoretical terms about what is right and wrong to practical terms as far as how we, what are we going to do as a, as a family, as a couple, in, in getting involved in these kinds of issues. And then later on in our marriage, uh, she got locked in with prison fellowship for a period of time, and three different times we kept prisoners in our home uh, when they're on a work release program. And, uh, and then she got involved in an organization called World Relief, and we were involved in sponsoring refugees coming over from Eastern Europe in our family. And uh, I remember long before the Martin Luther King birthday was a, a national holiday, she would take our kids out of school and take them down to Atlanta for the, for the King birthday parade. And so things like that just, just influenced me and influenced our family. And then as my oldest son grew up, he has a lot of his mom's similar characteristics of a, of a compassionate and merciful heart, and he got involved in high school in competitive debate and, um, and, and, and got very involved in, in the themes and the ideas. And of course, you get into that and you're going to get into all kinds of, of issues that are happening in the context of our culture. And I can clearly remember one of the most things that stuck out in my mind is he went to... A, a camp at the University of Michigan for a month, a debate camp for a month, and as I picked him up and we came home, uh, we were talking about his experience, but probably one of the most significant experiences he had, 
His coach, everyone was given a coach during the month, and his coach was an African-American debate uh, coach from the University of Louisville. But he said, Dad, you know, in the four weeks we were here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, my coach was stopped three times by the police. Not because he was breaking the law, but because he was an African-American and they were wondering why he was driving such a nice car. And we got involved in talking about those kinds of things. And then when he was in college, he went on a missions trip to Alabama, to a prison in Alabama. Now, this is a bunch of Christians uh, who are going off on a, using their spring break for a missions trip. And he said, Dad, you know what happened? We got to this, this prison in Alabama, and we were there to, to minister to the prisoners. He said, there is a Christian prisoner in that prison, and he preached to us from Isaiah 58. And if you know anything about that chapter in Isaiah 58, it's talking about the kind of fast that God is looking for, the fast of a broken heart and being merciful and standing for God's justice in the context of this world. So these kinds of experiences significantly have impacted me and those two people have really been mentors to me in many ways as far as seeking to understand this idea of this theme of mercy and justice. Now, we have to understand where this theme fits into God's story, and that's why uh, I brought in again, if you saw there in the, uh, at the, in the, where the connection cards are, a print of this picture, which really is an outline of God's story, what he has been about, what he is doing in creation and in our world, and what he is accomplishing and bringing about in his purposes for his kingdom. So you see there's, there's four cells or four panels here. You have creation, and then, and then you see the creation is a time of flourishing. Uh, the tree is flourishing, and you have fruit, and you have, and you have the birds which represent life. And this little panel over here says life before the fall. But then our first parents fell and rebelled against God, and this brought loss and deep brokenness, rebellion. And you can see that the only birds there are the sparrows that are tur- the crows that are turned away from one another, and the tree is is barren. Uh, this this represents the brokenness that came and, and and continues in our broken world. Jesus came and brought redemption, which is the third panel. So you see, there's a cross in the middle of a tree, and the tree is beginning to flourish again. There's butterflies, and love comes. That's the panel down here, where there's redemption. It doesn't bring completion. But there is, the kingdom has come, but it hasn't come in its fullness yet. Theologians reflect on the condition of Jesus' first coming and says, Jesus came preaching the kingdom, but the kingdom hasn't come in its fullness, and so it's here, but it's not yet. The kingdom is here, and it's working, and God is working his kingdom purposes through his people, but it hasn't come in fruition. That doesn't come until the restoration, this final panel, when Jesus comes again and makes all things new and brings hope and redemption to the world so that the entire created order is going to be transformed. And we anticipate the church for, for 2,000 years has been crying out, come Lord Jesus, with the deep hope and the expectation that he's going to wipe away all sorrow and all pain and take away our tears, and bring His justice and His mercy to this entire recreated order. And that's what Christians are waiting for with a real sense of anticipation, this restoration. And we'll come back to this a number of times, but this is what you need to know right now. That where we are in this world 
is this time when we're between this here and the not yet. We're anticipating the restoration of God's kingdom. We, many of us, have experienced this redemption experience, but not the whole world hasn't experienced the redemptive experience yet. The world and all of our lives are lived in this tension between the impact of the rebellion when we walked away from the living God and those of us who've experienced redemption and the tensions involved in that. So the whole idea of mercy and justice is caught in this process of being in this broken world experiencing, many people experiencing the redemption of God and having that redemption, seeking to bring about levels of the restoration of humanity and the restoration of our world, but not seeing it fully until Jesus comes again. That's the process that we're looking at this morning. So the first thing we need to look at is the fact that, as we saw in this, in this picture of the rebellion, that all creation is broken. And this is a very real and significant issue. It says in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will eventually be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. But right now, creation was subjected to futility. And this isn't just referring to people and the condition of our brokenness as people, this is talking about the entire world order, including social structures. Now, we could give a lot of illustrations of what this looks like, but some of us uh, will remember this gentleman, Steve Garber, who was here for a seminar last October. And at that seminar, Steve told the story of visiting his son, who was a veterinarian in the army, but his son was stationed actually doing research in India. And as he was in India, he was, uh, excuse me, I'm going to come back to that story in a minute. No, this is uh, another story of Steve. I'm using Steve in a couple of places here. Steve, for 15 years, was a teacher in Washington, D.C., in what was called the American Studies Program. So this is one of these programs where college students would come for a semester in Washington, D.C., and Steve was the one who was heading up this program. And what he said was, Bob, he said, Students will come to Washington, D.C. and study, and many of them will come and stay in Washington, and they come with this sense that I am going to come to D.C. and I am going to change the world. It's much like the attitude that you get every four to to eight years when a new administration comes in, and and, and, and the theme of every new administration was the administration that came before me really blew it. But I'm going to set things straight. And we all know what happens after four to six years, don't we? And regardless of the administration, they're struggling trying to figure out how do I grapple with the implications of working in Washington, D.C. And what Steve has said as he's directed this program for 15 years, he said, I'd see students come in with this sense of, I'm going to change Washington. And they lasted maybe two years. Because Washington would show them the brokenness of this world. And it wasn't so easy to change. We've all experienced that, haven't we? Going into activities or programs with great hope, only to see our hopes dashed. For so many different reasons. 
This is a broken world. And all creation is broken. Now the good news is, is that Jesus came to bring in the kingdom and to make all things new. And in Colossians, Paul writes, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What this passage is saying, and the good news of this passage, is that all things are going to be made new. And even right now, he is in the process of reconciling all things to himself. So in a very real sense, where we are today is that Jesus came, and we see in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, proclaiming the gospel and saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. We also see in Revelation chapter 21 verse 5, the statement that Jesus makes when he returns, and he says, behold, I make all things new. But where we stand today is between the the kingdom of God's at hand and behold, I make all things new. We stand between those times. And what is happening? And how do we function between those two times? Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. As we see in this panel again, between his first coming and his second coming. Until Jesus returns, this is the third thing we have to understand, and his kingdom is is being proclaimed by us, his church, by coupling evangelism and discipleship with mercy and justice. And I deliberately put in this panel, not one or the other. You see, what often has happened, if you look at this panel, is that some parts of the church have put their focus on creation and the way things were, and they've anticipated the restoration the way things should be, and they focus on one of those two areas. They they, they think about what can we do to make this world the way Christ wants it to be. Another portion of the church focuses on the fact fact that the, the, the world is broken and in rebellion, and it needs redemption, but it's totally focused on rebellion and redemption. That part of the church says, listen, the, church is going, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and until Jesus comes back, the only thing that's going to bring hope is Jesus' salvation for his people. And so they totally put their focus on salvation, while the other group totally puts its focus on the idea of mercy and justice and being God's representatives in this world. And the fact is, that, that Jesus gives us both of these responsibilities. Interesting hap- thing happened in, in Acts chapter 4. You might remember that story. Jesus has risen from the dead, and he is, his spirit has come upon the church, and Peter and the apostles begin preaching. And Peter comes to the temple one day, and there's a man at the temple who has been uh, an invalid for vir- virtually all of his life. And, and he's begging there at the temple. And Peter goes up to him and says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I'll give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. 
And the man jumped up and walked and began jumping and leaping and praising God. And the, every, everyone in the temple was just amazed. And then Peter used that opportunity to preach the gospel. Well, unfortunately, the people who were in the power structures of the system didn't like that very much. And they took Peter and, and John and they, they put them in the prison. And then they brought them before the tribunal. And they said, who do you think you are and what are you doing? Peter and John said, we're here to preach Jesus and talk about Jesus. And this man was healed in Jesus' name. And they eventually beat them and said, shut up and don't talk about Jesus anymore. And Peter and John's response was, you have to live with what you're asking us to do. All we know is we have to be obedient to our God. It really, in the New Testament, is one of the first times that you see nonviolent protest. Uh, against the authorities. As the church said, we have to obey God, not man, in this particular situation. Then they went back to the brothers and sisters and they prayed together. And this is part of their prayer. Now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Now, I don't care where you stand regarding ongoing gifts of miracles and healings and things like that. There's a lot of dispute in the church. But the fact is, is the church of Christ, from the time of the apostles till now, has been actively involved in both preaching the gospel, speaking your word with boldness, and being involved in healing and signs and wonders, doing all kinds of things in the name of Jesus for His glory and to declare His his glory through acts of mercy and justice. And this is that second story I was going to tell you uh, about Steve Garber. Uh, his son, he went to visit his son in India. And one of the things he was struck with, is, as he told us last October, he said, I was struck by, as we were going through India, seeing all these hospitals and schools in India that were built and functioning. And they all had Christian names on them. St. Something or Other Hospital. And uh, this school with a Christian name. And he said, I finally asked my son, why don't I see any schools or hospitals with Hindu names? And his son said, because the Hindu religion does not value human beings as being made in the image of God, they see us simply in this recurring, dying, and then, you know, um, What's the word I'm trying to think of? Reincarnation, dying, reincarnation, dying, reincarnation. And they don't see the need for hospitals and for education because the people are in the caste that they were stuck in because of the way they've, been, they've lived and they're going to have to live a different life to become reincarnated to get into a better position. But the Christians have come here in the name of Jesus, bringing mercy and justice where they come building homes and hospitals and caring for the poor and the weak. And the church has been doing that for over 2,000 years. I could tell you story after story after story from the days of Rome and the plagues in Rome all the way to the present day and the work of the International Justice Mission of how the church has been involved declaring Jesus and doing acts of mercy and justice in His name. 
So you ask me, okay, well, Bob, what is mercy ministry? What is mercy, works of justice? Well, mercy ministry can be described or defined as giving faith an active expression through deeds of compassion. And a passage that, that just one of many passages is Jesus saying, be merciful even as your Father in heaven is merciful. And so the church has been involved in acts of deep mercy and kindness and acts of compassion through the centuries. Well, what is justice ministry? Uh, mercy ministry is more common to us and it's more known. So, so when we do the work of giving money to the wells, and building wells. That's mercy ministry. When we, we give money to action ministries, we give food to that. that, that's mercy ministry. What is justice ministry? Justice ministry is a little less common, and actually for those of us who are Caucasian, we tend to be less comfortable with this often. But justice ministry means bringing in shalom, making the community a place where all can live together in wholeness. The idea of shalom is the Hebrew word for peace, but it's also the word for wholeness, for completeness. And the idea of bringing shalom to a community, as you study the Old Testament prophets and as you move into the New Testament and you see Jesus calling his ministry according to the prophets, you see that bringing justice and shalom is just as much a part as bringing in mercy. And I could take you to passage after passage in the Old and New Testament where the church is called to be agents of justice as well as mercy. But one passage, um, and you can see that the definition here is because it's a concern for the wholeness of everyone, justice ministry pays special attention to the needs of the weak and the marginalized. That means those who do not have power, those who are not in a position of being able to uh, uh, function well in the culture. Micah 6.8 is a classic passage which talks about our calling to justice ministry. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So what do I mean by justice? Why do we need to be concerned about justice as well as mercy? Let me underline this by telling you a story. Uh, If I were to use be talking to you as parents and your parenting responsibilities or future parenting responsibilities or past parenting responsibilities. And I, and I was to say to you, what was it like for you when you had to give your child the talk? Most of us understand what we mean by that is, is there's going to be some times when we have to talk to our kids about the birds and the bees. And so we always think about the fact that, that, that sometime we're going to take our child off, usually sometime in early adolescence, maybe they're 11, 12, 13, depending upon their circumstances and things, and we have to have the talk with them. And so that's what we, we experience as parents in our community. When you talk about the African-American community and you talk about a parent giving their child the talk, it has a very different meaning. The talk in the African-American community is when a parent talks to their children about how to handle themselves when they are pulled over by the police. And this is a standard experience in the African-American home. 
This gentleman is a gentleman by the name of Leon Crump. And Leon, Leonce Crump, excuse me. And Leonce is a church planter in Atlanta. He's the pastor of Restoration Fellowship. When Seven Hills Fellowship was planted, it was planted as a daughter church of Perimeter Church in, uh, in Johns Creek, Georgia. Perimeter Church also, a couple of years later, recruited Leonce, and Leonce started a church under the same influence. And so Leonce has been part of a church planting movement that BP has been involved with, and they're good friends. And uh, after the experience in Ferguson a few months ago, Ferguson, Missouri, um, Ed Stetzer, who is a friend of um, the no- uh, Catherine and, and Randy Nobles and some others, went to uh, Shorter University. Ed is a researcher, and, and, and he writes a, a column for Christianity Today. And Ed interviewed a number of African-American leaders about their response to their experience at Ferguson. And Leonce said this. He said, I am six foot five inches. I weigh 270 pounds. I have been called imposing. The police have stopped me, both walking and driving, nearly once a year since I was 15 years old. I have been asked to leave my vehicle. I've been thrown to the ground. I've been thrown against my vehicle. I've been interrogated, frisked, and cuffed on these occasions. But I have not been cited once. Not once. We have to understand the experiences of our brothers and sisters who are not part of the majority culture. We have to understand our Hispanic brothers and sisters, our Asian brothers and sisters, our African-American brothers and sisters. And we have to have mercy towards their experiences. But we also need to, as the church, stand and understand and promote what it means to experience justice in our culture. We have to ask ourselves questions about why Leonce would go through something like this. And is this healthy and responsible for our society? Now, as we bring that up, I know that's not necessarily comfortable for us to think about, and yet it's critically important. At the same time, we also grapple with the fact as we stand for mercy and justice that we do it in a broken world. That being the case, we have to understand that until Jesus returns, all mercy and justice ministry is going to be what I would call proximate. Again, a story of Steve Garber. A pastor friend of mine in Washington, D.C., a number of years ago, asked Steve if he would meet with a member of his congregation who works in the national security area in Washington, D.C. Now, when you talk about national security in Washington, D.C., you're generally referring to either the CIA or the NSA, National Security Agency, or the FBI. And I don't know where this person worked, but this person got together with Steve because he was a follower of Jesus. And his deepening faith required him to think Christianly about his life and his work. But he didn't know where to begin. This is the way he put it. Day by day, I have unimaginable evil coming across my desk. What am I supposed to do with that? 
And as he and Steve talked together about his responsibilities and about the decisions he had to make and about the difficulties of what does it mean to have to confront evil and to face these kinds of decisions where there seems to be like there's a no-win answer to it, the conclusion they came to was the fact that as, as a representative of Jesus Christ in a national security agency, his responsibility was to seek proximate justice. What do we mean by that? Proximate justice realizes that something is better than nothing. It allows us to make peace with some justice, with some mercy, while realizing that it will only be until the new heavens and the new earth that we find all of our longings finally fulfilled and we'll see all of God's demands finally met. So our calling is not to bring utopia in this broken world, but our calling is to stand for justice and mercy. Recognizing while it's proximate, it's a representative of Jesus. Nicholas Waltersdorf is a philosopher and a theologian who has taught in a number of places, Calvin College, Yale University, now he's at the University of Virginia. And he writes this insightful statement. He says, the church is the body of Christ on earth. Jesus is no longer physically present among us. Yet we're not to think of him as simply absent from the earth. The church on earth is to be seen as his body, and in that body, his spirit is present. The conclusion seems unavoidable that we are to carry on with such means as are given to us Jesus' work of proclaiming the coming of the kingdom and producing samples of its shalom. You see the proximate justice idea there? We can't accomplish everything, but we can provide samples of his shalom to a watching world. So, this brings me to some questions about Seven Hills Fellowship and our role here. The first question is this. In the midst of this creation that we're living in, where there's rebellion and redemption, yet we're moving towards restoration, the first question is this. How can we do mercy and justice without hurting ourselves and hurting others? What do you mean by that, Bob? Simply this, it's very possible for us being naive and simplistic to actually do more harm than good in trying to do good. Let me give you an illustration. Numbers of years ago, I was involved in a mercy ministry activity at Perimeter Church. And what we did was we enlisted families to buy Christmas presents and buy food for Christmas meals and they, as a family, would literally go down to the city to uh, an, an under-resourced family and go to that family, an appointment would be arranged, and their family would come down to the other family, and they would give that family the food and the presents and have a little celebration together, and then, and then they, would, they would leave the stuff with the family. Now, on face, it sounded great. But what actually happened was it created a situation where the under-resourced family felt like here's these well-meaning but paternalistic white folks who are coming down, knocking on their door, dumping the stuff off, and then leaving them. 
And in one brief shining moment, they get all these gifts. But what does it do for them? It makes them feel inadequate. It underlines their fact of the, the lack of their resources. It particularly impacts the parents who don't have the ability to take care of their kids and suddenly have these folks come from the suburbs and dump all this stuff on them. Fortunately, there was enough communication about the pain that was happening that changes were made. And what began to happen was this. Parents and, and, and people in, in the church began to buy presents at Christmas time and give presents to a local ministry that set up a store. It wasn't a free store. It was a store where parents would come and, for example, buy a $45 toy for their kid for Christmas for $250. Uh, it was, but it was allowing them to take the resources that they had and to pay for the presents that they were able to get for their children and bring those presents home as the parents and actually feel good about giving their children a present that they paid for and that they worked for. And so this brought not only a sense of, of mercy for the, for the people who were helping provide these more expensive gifts, but also the sense of justice, of wholeness, of completeness to parents who felt like they were making an investment and giving to their children and not just having folks come from the suburbs and dumping stuff at their doorstep. How can we do mercy and justice without hurting ourselves and others? That's a question we're going to have to constantly be asking, even as we're involved in these ministries. The second question is this. We've made this statement, and you hear it almost every Sunday, that our prayer and our desire for Seven Hills Fellowship is to be involved in seeing the kingdom of God, the invisible kingdom of God, become visible in Rome, Georgia. The question is simply this. What needs to happen to see this take place? What needs to happen among us to see this take place? I'm not here to give the answers this morning. I'm here to say this needs to continually be a prayer of ours as we seek to understand. We have two teams, the here team and the there team. And they are working and praying and asking God, how can we as a fellowship express the mercy and the justice of God to Rome, Georgia, in a way where people tangibly see samples of shalom at work in our community. Not perfection, but process. I'd like to introduce you in closing to a friend of mine and a friend of BP's. His name is Mike Higgins. You see his picture on the left. Mike was a full bird colonel, retired chaplain in the United States Army. He's one of the few chaplains who has been offered the opportunity to actually become a general. He was working in the Pentagon, and they asked him if he would go for general, and he asked not to so that he could be closer to people, closer to the men and women. Mike retired from the Army and is now the Dean of Students at Covenant Seminary. It was my joy to be one of the readers of his doctoral dissertation there. And Mike grew up in St. Louis in one of the toughest communities of that city. An all-African-American community and never really knew white folks at all until he went to college at University of Missouri in St. Louis. 
and there was an ROTC, and that's how he moved towards the military. Uh, while he was in the military, and he, uh, he was in reserve, so he was living and working in St. Louis, he felt called by God out of his Pentecostal environment. He was in a Pentecostal church. He felt called by God to ministry. He was preaching and doing ministry and works. He said, I need to have more training. And so he went to the yellow pages, literally, and looked up seminaries. And because Covenant Theological Seminary was the first alphabetically, he just went ahead and called Covenant Seminary up and ended up going to Covenant and graduating from there. And by God's humor, eventually was ordained in the denomination we're ordained in as, a, as one of about 39 African-American pastors in the PCA. And, uh, and this, this is the statement that he made. Um, I thought I might have had it typed up. Uh, when he was reflecting a few weeks ago on what God has done in his life and ministry, he says, as a pastor in a predominantly white denomination, I believe I am called to love and serve those whose ancestors may have owned my ancestors. The only way to actually function in this environment without wanting to knock somebody down is to listen to what the gospel says about real reconciliation based on agape love. The Holy Spirit graciously reminds me of the redemption provided by Jesus to me, a sinner. Jesus gave his life for me. He chose to do it because he loved me. I have tried to hate white people, but I just can't. I can't seem to pull it off. It's a Jesus thing. A few minutes ago we sang Joy to the World. In the third verse it says, He came to make His blessings known far as the curse is found. He came to make His blessings known to Mike Higgins. To bring him to himself. To take away his hatred of white people and give them a love. To serve them and care for them in Jesus' name. He came to make His blessings known far as the curse is found. And He planted Seven Hills Fellowship in Rome, Georgia. To be a place where the kingdom of God is exhibited, not perfectly, but proximately, in mercy and justice. God, help us to be revolutionaries who care for people in His name and stand for His truth and His shalom in a broken world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I don't really understand what many of my brothers and sisters have been through. I've been protected. I've been privileged. The Lord God, I know I've also been saved as a broken person who's desperately needed Jesus. Lord, you have been kind enough to bring shalom to my life. And I pray, Lord God, in my brothers and sisters here, that you give us your grace and your Holy Spirit to grapple together, to seek to understand what it means to be revolutionaries in mercy and justice in our day. Help us to remember that the visible way that we demonstrate Jesus is by our love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
We've asked the question before, we ask it again. How is God bringing His kingdom in? God's bringing His kingdom in by taking you as His redeemed people and making you agents of reconciliation. It's like taking salt and sprinkling salt over fresh meat. You can't see the salt when it hits the meat. It penetrates, it impacts, it changes. He is calling each one of us this week between Sundays to get out of the salt shaker and to be His redemptive agents penetrating Rome, Georgia, and Atlanta, and Georgia, and the United States. Wherever He sends you this week, He is calling you to be His redemptive agent. His Spirit of God is equipping us. He's bringing in His kingdom through us proximately until Jesus comes again. With that in mind and that calling on our hearts, may the love of God the Father, may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and the shalom that the Spirit of God brings upon us and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you and upon you this week as His agents. God bless you.